Welcome to The Five Things. It's This Week in Social. Each week, we dive deep into five topics in the world of social media to talk about the things that you want to know more about, but we're too afraid to ask your coworkers. Speaking for myself, I ask these two coworkers constantly what things mean. Like Tommy Boyce, why is Sydney Sweeney an icon? I mean, how much time do we have, Joey? I mean, you can all judge me if you want. I have never, ever been happier watching her lose her mind every Sunday at nine. She's giving the girls everything we want. And Amanda Davis, if I'm playing Wordle, am I in the metaverse? As of right now, English is a language of the metaverse, but that's not to say there won't be a new language introduced in the next, you know, few years. I'm Joey Scarillo. I love asking questions. Here are the five things. First, Tommy tells us about Twitter's new NFT profile pictures. Then Tommy sticks with NFTs to tell us about Instagram, who are reportedly letting users make, showcase, and sell NFTs. Then Amanda gets into TikTok testing creator subscription fees. Tommy breaks down the Pew Research report that details growth in tech use by 65 and older consumers. And Amanda comes back to TikTok, who are working on new opt-in functions to show you who viewed your profile. All right, let's dive in. Tommy, kick us off with Twitter introducing NFT profile pictures. Yeah, so in a move that garnered nothing but positive reactions, Twitter is introducing a way for users, as long as they have Twitter blue, and that's important, to change their profile to an authenticated NFT from their crypto wallet. Twitter Blue subscribers will see the new option in their profile settings, which will guide them through the linking process for their NFTs. Um, they can connect their crypto wallet, which links to their NFT collection, establishing a direct pipeline between their in image and ownership info. That then switches the profile image to a new hexagonal shape, which when tapped provides profile visitors with more info on their displayed image. These paying Twitter users will be able to show off their NFTs in a more certified capacity with the images directly linked back to ownership data on OpenSea. It's a move that limits unauthorized NFT use and people right-clicking and saving as people who don't own the image won't get the new hexagonal logo or additional linking options. As explained by Twitter, Twitter is where people go to talk about the things they care about and often where people have their first experience with crypto and NFTs. We're now seeing people use NFTs as a form of identity and self-expression and as a way to join the thriving community and increasingly active conversation on Twitter. This new feature provides a seamless, user-friendly way for people on Twitter to verify their NFT ownership by allowing them to directly connect their crypto wallets to Twitter and select an NFT from their collection as their new profile picture. And honestly, my first thought from all this is, wow. Twitter is going to make Twitter Blue have its moment one way or another. The initial Blue offering, it's safe to say, hasn't been a massive hit. I really haven't seen much adoption of it at all. But tapping into the popularity of NFTs could be honestly like a galaxy brain moment for the feature because I'm sure Twitter is betting on the fact that people spending thousands of dollars on JPEGs also have enough expendable income to spend three bucks a month to actually display these JPEGs. And I think it's interesting that this feature came out a little bit ago, and I'm seeing, I don't know about y'all, but a whole new wave of anti-NFT backlash, bigger than I've ever seen previously. It's against this, and also, I don't know if you guys saw that bizarre interview with 
Paris Hilton and Jimmy Fallon, of all people, talking about their own NFTs. They both purchased uh, Bored Apes. And it seems like people who are not in the NFT crypto community are really not having this and not having this new feature at all. And I don't think that's Twitter's problem at all. I think their goal here was to encourage the NFT community and get people to sign up to Twitter Blue. I think it pulled off both of those like masterfully. But I think it's important to note that there is a lot of backlash negativity against this, the likes of which I have not seen before. So I think this is an, a very, very smart move for Twitter. It knows the conversation's happening on its app. It knows the people using the app. It knows what's wanted. And it figured out a way to monetize it, which is what Twitter's kind of goal has been for the past few months. But I think seeing this new wave is just very interesting. Tommy, that was uh, a great analysis. So two questions. Do you, do you think that this move goes far enough for Twitter? And... Do you think that the crypto crowd is jumping on board with this hexagon? Do they love it or do they hate it? Well, it's interesting. This actually goes pretty deep. And apparently there's a lot of issues with how Twitter is choosing to actually authenticate it. Because I think an issue is people, you can say you can make your own NFT, but you can use an existing NFT as an NFT. But with the hexagon, like say like you buy like the most, you want to steal, steal their JPEGs, the most profitable, expensive board ape. If you make your own NFT that looks like it and authenticate that, you get the hexagon. So there's a lot of issues with the actual like layout and processing of this whole like endeavor. So people like really deep in the know are saying that Twitter isn't going far enough. I'm sure though that newbies to the scene and people who just want to kind of flaunt like, oh, they're, you know, expendable income and the fact that they're a part of a cool, like cool, they're part of a new trendy um, thing we'll see this and go, great, I can prove that I actually have, you know, I have the the thing, I have the NFT. But I think there's been a surprising backlash on both sides of this, from both the NFT community and the non-NFT community. So I'm not sure how far this goes, actually. I think this is all very, very new. And I think the actual adoption and seeing how this will proceed in the next few months will be very interesting, because I did not expect to see backlash from both sides. I thought the NFT crowd would be very happy with this but I think there's some things that Twitter didn't consider when rolling this out. Yeah, Amanda, what's what's your take? Yeah, I always make the joke that um, everyone on Twitter hates NFTs and everyone on Twitter loves NFTs. It's a really polarizing conversation for people on the platform. And I think one thing we'd be remiss not to mention too is that a lot of people and a lot of the conversation and, and passion that's fueled by anti-NFT conversations is really around crypto. So when you see a large platform like Twitter push out something to become a little bit more mainstream that's built on on crypto and, and perhaps not the most sustainable blockchain technology, there obviously will be response to that um, for it being irresponsible or for it being you know pushed into a mainstream conversation when it's perhaps not ready yet. So that's the part of the conversation that like, I don't want to leave unspoken is there's a sustainability and environmental impact that is also fueling this conversation to Tommy's point from the anti NFT is a layer of it, but it's obviously driven by the crypto and blockchain conversation. So there's a there's a slight distinction between the two because at its core, and I, I don't, I, we're talking about two NFT um, topics here. So I do want to level set us to that at its core, NFT technology is built to protect the creator of the art. The same way that if I made a piece of clothing for Tommy and sold it to him for $10 and then he turned around and sold it for $10,000, I as the creator wouldn't get any of that in previous versions of the economy or of art, traditional art or clothing. So 
NFT technology is built to, again, support the original creator. But we're going to see some of the kinks get worked out through the next, I'm sure, couple of years as the like logistics get solved. And it's one of the more transparent technology shifts that we've been able to see. So it's going to be a little uncomfortable. And it's going to be a little bit weird. And we expect to see, you know, some ups and downs, but all in the sake of trying to figure out the best way to protect creators and to, you know, give people access to the art and content that they want. Yeah. Speaking of ups and downs with NFTs, let's jump over to Facebook and Instagram, who are now reportedly going to let users make, showcase, and sell their NFTs. Tommy, why don't you explain that one? Yeah, back to NFTs. God, I sound like a finance bro on a first date. So jokes aside, Meta is moving from the metaverse to the Bored Ape Yacht Club, and it's exploring plans to let users create, showcase, and sell NFTs on Facebook and Instagram, according to a report from the Financial Times. Per the report, the plans are at an early stage and could yet change. The publication says teams at Facebook and Instagram are readying a feature that will let users display NFTs as their profile pictures, as well as working on a prototype to let users mint new NFTs. Others at Meta are reportedly discussing launching a marketplace for users to buy and sell NFTs. Now, we don't know exactly how far along these plans are, but it's not the first show of interest in NFTs that we've seen from Meta leaders. Instagram chief Adam Masseri said last December that the company is actively exploring NFTs and how they can make them more accessible to a wider audience. And last October, Mark Zuckerberg spoke about how the metaverse will need support ownership of digital goods or NFTs. So this report is kind of insane to me. I mean, if Meta were to launch these tools, it would be probably the biggest show of mainstream support for NFTs to date. And it would do wonders to help solidify the, you know, the somewhat controversial, as Amanda, to your point, um, assets place in the digital world. I think that for Meta too, embracing NFTs could also help, you know, help it wield a greater influence in the metaverse and could potentially boost the value and importance of NFTs overall. But I think something to note too, if Meta releases a new way to mint NFTs, that would mean it, you know, centralizing control over the assets, which goes against one of the main tenets of Web3, which is, you know, a decentralization and a move away from platforms like Facebook that have traditionally controlled how people interact online. So I wonder what people would make of that aspect of not just being able to, you know, put it as your profile picture, like talked about Twitter a minute ago, but going through a platform to make, going through a social platform to make and mint new NFTs. So yes, it's all NFTs all the time here on the Five Things Podcast. But I think if this were to happen, this would be a really, really strong show in the power and future of NFTs. But definitely, as you said to your point, Amanda, earlier, it'll be a little bit uncomfy. It'll take a while to iron out these kinks. But I mean, people are really going all into the NFT game. So this technology, obviously, will keep being a major thing we see going forward. I'm sure this will, we might start seeing, you know, an NFT story every week at this point. It's just, there's so much buzz and momentum around the technology right now. Yeah. Amanda, you mentioned that the people on Twitter love NFTs and hate NFTs. And and I, Tommy, I thought you brought up an interesting point about the decentralization. Do we think that the people will love this or hate this, that Meta is jumping in in this way? I don't think people will 
adopt it as much as they would adopt it on another platform. Um, and I'm going to bring another topic of conversation in that we will likely keep referring to. And it's something that people are calling decentralized social media. So this has yet to be figured out exactly um, what this looks like or who the arbitrator of it will be, whether it's a, a Twitter-like object or something that really doesn't exist yet. Um, but the idea is that obviously people still want to connect and socialize. How do you do that in a way that feels decentralized and doesn't feel owned and controlled by a certain entity? Um, and when you think about NFTs and you think about, which we're going to talk, I know a lot more about content creators and content on these platforms, like back to the example we were talking about with art and wanting ownership and monetization over the art that you make. It's the same way with content. So there's a, there is a clear role for NFTs to provide value to content creators to give them ownership over the content that they make instead of it going out into the internet, them never seeing it again, and them not making a dime off of it. So when you think about that need and that use case, there is a place for NFTs and social media in that way. Um, I don't know that Facebook and Instagram proper will be the ones to solve it. But I do think that this is almost a, a test for Meta to understand how they can build a blockchain or a platform for monetization in what they're considering the metaverse as more meta proper. But I don't know that this will see a huge surge with Facebook and Instagram users as far as trust and true adoption. I think a lot of people will try it and have fun with it and learn more about NFTs, but I don't see this becoming its own marketplace. Okay, let's all take a deep breath and stop talking about NFTs. We've talked a lot about it. Let's go over to TikTok and their subscription fees. Amanda, tell us about it. So to change the subject, TikTok, <laughs> TikTok confirmed that it's testing a feature that will allow its creators to offer exclusive content to its paid subscribers. So they confirmed this test, but it's still really unclear when it rolls out, how many creators are going to have access to it and the exact pay structure. Um, and I want to remind us, you know, Twitter did recently launch its Creator Next Hub, which has monetization features and functionality. They added tipping features where viewers can tip their creators directly. And if I recall correctly, I think they're TikTok takes a 0% cut of that tip. And then I also keep thinking about the story that we talked about a couple of weeks ago around kind of licensing TikTok videos in new spaces. And I'm sure creators make a cut of that too. So I do want to mention, because we never get to say this, TikTok is doing this after Instagram and Twitter have already rolled it out. So we get to flip the script a little bit. But there is one question that all the platforms are kind of trying to figure out. And it's essentially... How do you offer enough content to all the users where people can have a good time on the app, discover new content, discover new creators, but still paywall, one might say, higher quality content or exclusive content? And how do you balance that and make sure that both the paid subscribers and the unpaid or even untapped subscribers still have access to the great content? It's a question that no one's really answered yet. But I would argue it's more important for TikTok. The algorithm is really not as based on who you follow. It's more about the kinds of content that you like, whereas Instagram and Twitter really does depend on who you follow to lead you to new content. So TikTok probably is, is going to be more interested in figuring out what this balance looks like. But at, at the same time, I'll say these platforms are still a two-way street. We talk a lot about the creators and the power that they hold. But the creators also need to find new fans and new followers and new audiences. So 
I don't know that it will be a huge concern in that creators will paywall all of their good content and not show any of their good content for free. I don't think that's a huge concern right now, um, but it's definitely something the platforms are considering. Tommy, do you think this will change your user experience on the platform at all? I was wondering that when I first saw this because I might be a rare case. I almost never go to the followers tab on TikTok. I'm only on my For You page. Like I follow people almost as like a way to encourage my For You page to show their content more often without having to literally just make a single click and go to the other stream. So, and I wonder, I saw you guys both nod your heads, famously podcast or visual medium. And I wonder how much they actually use the followers stream. If they don't, I think that is a case for this to be you know, implemented as a way for followers to sort of engage with their fans more. I've seen a lot, uh, I don't know about you, I've seen a recent uptick in live streaming um, from people on TikTok because of the new tips probably as a way to, you know, monetize their content and connect with fans. So I think this is a good move from the platform. I think it shows they have a dedication to their creators. They know how important it is to keep that stream going and just keep the content funnel moving. But I wonder how many people are actually going to... I can only think of a few people I'd ever want to subscribe to on an app where I can watch content for literally you know six hours a day if you know unchecked. So I wonder how much if people actually adopt this. But I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Okay, next over to Tommy, who's going to tell us about the Pew Research report that details growth in tech users from 65 and older consumers. Tommy, you're not just about Gen Z. Tell us about 65 and older consumers. Yeah, so this is a fun one. Pew Research Center, a research firm based in DC, released a report on demographic habits regarding social media adoption and other tech issues. It showed that on several fronts, adoption of key technologies by those in the oldest age group, 65 plus, has grown markedly since about a decade ago. And the gap between the oldest and youngest adults has narrowed in regards to social media usage. The survey found that 96% of those ages 18 to 29 owned a smartphone, not surprising, compared with 61% of those 65 and older. That's a 35-point difference, but that difference has narrowed by 12 points since 2010. Likewise, the amount of people 65 and older who said that they use social media has grown four times over since 2010, while use by youngest adults has remained constant in that time. So you can see that there's a pretty substantial growth in the use of social media and tech by those 65 and older, while the use of tech and social media by those, you know, my age, Gen Z, has kind of plateaued. And there are some notable differences between age groups. Some 48% of those 18, 29 said they were online almost constantly. I can relate. Well, only 22% of those 50 to 64 and 8% of those 65 and older said that they were online almost constantly. But I think this report is interesting in that it shows how there's a real trend of adoption and an audience that maybe you don't expect to constantly be online or use social media like they're currently doing. And I think people 65 and older have always been on the internet. I think of, there was a famous, this is a fun little anecdote, but there was a famous grandma who streamed her playing Skyrim on YouTube back in, I think, 2015, 2016. And so it shows one that this audience has always been there, but they're just going to start increasing. And as you know, young adults and older adults get older who are already comfortable with the internet, and as the internet starts to envelop our lives, you think of the metaverse, you think of how these technologies 
are just kind of compounding and entering our everyday lives. We're going to have to just turn our attention to these older audiences and try to envelop them in the way that we currently do with younger audiences. So I think this is a nice little reminder and a great report seeing how different demographics use the internet. So Amanda, why does this data matter for brands? I think it's important, not too far from what Tommy was saying, to remember that not only does do age demographics uh, operate differently on the internet, but also that behavior evolves. Like what we might think um, of 65 plus 20 years ago is obviously different than what 65 plus looks like right now. So I think iteratively changing your strategy, um, you know, understanding who your target audience is and how you're reaching them should be updated and uh, revised and reviewed consistently to understand if that's true to how your audience is actually behaving on the internet. Yeah, of course. All right, let's jump back to TikTok. They are working on a new opt-in function to show who viewed your profile. Amanda, why don't you tell us about that? So this one, again, is quite simple. TikTok is testing an opt-in functionality that would let you see who's looking at your profile, um, but you would have to basically opt into it as well as the other person whose profile you are viewing. So what I find interesting, which I did not know, is TikTok used to have this feature um, as a way to kind of increase connections and, and finding people on the app. I think when this was announced, a lot of people were a little bit confused and scratching their heads around wh why they would add this and how this would help. But obviously, this makes you think of another um, social media network, LinkedIn, that's obviously used for networking, where you can see who's viewed your profile and understand how to make connections that way. And I would argue that this is a networking platform for a lot of content creators and, and influencers and, and collaborators on the platform. You know, if there is one way as a content creator to extend your reach and, and grow your, your brand, it's to make content with other people and to connect with other people on the app. So I think when we think of networking, where it exists and how it exists, like we need to think beyond what we're considering LinkedIn and, and professional networking and understand how this might come to life for a new generation of, of content creators. I agree with you. I do think that this feature does sound LinkedIn-esque, if you will. Tommy, would this change anything for you? Would you think twice about visiting a profile page knowing that the the creator could see that Tommy Boyce was uh, creeping on their page? It is funny because my first thought was, you know, the LinkedIn of it all. And the other day, my friend uh, looked at my uh, profile on LinkedIn and I sent him a picture like, oh, why are you stalking me? And I got accused of pocket watching. So I think that I would be a little more hesitant to look at a profile, maybe, but also that's what TikTok's for. You see TikTok you like, you go to their profile, and now with the pinned um, profile videos, you have a chance of curating your content, which I think these two features will go very well hand in hand together. The ability to choose the content people see directly and then see the kinds of people coming to your platform. I think maybe... This would take a lot of work, I think, but if you see over and over a certain kind of demographic or audience coming to your profile, you could probably curate your content towards that profile, start engaging with fans more, cultivating an audience organically who's already responding to the things that you're putting out. And I think also TikTok is becoming a place, Amanda, you said, of networkers. I remember like I think of that that Axel kid, I forget like their full name. Um, the you know, the Juilliard Edition boy, the smallest apartment in Manhattan. And the network opportunities he's gotten from TikTok and the, and the, you know, the modeling sponsorships and the so on and so forth. And I think with this, you know, this development, people can maybe 
start getting in that action more and start cultivating these relationships with other brands and creators. I think there could be a, it's going to depend on how, like, because the problem is TikTok, there's just a barrage of everything on that app. So it'll be interesting to see how well users can make it work. I think there's a lot of potential here for the future of this. Any final thoughts, Amanda? You you could say no, and I'll just segue differently. No, I'm just, uh, no, I think this will be interesting to see if and how it impacts behavior of users on the platform. Um, I also think there's a lot of uh, features that we've seen rolled out and maybe we've not understood their full uh, purpose or intent, um, but then have proven to be really important. So I don't know. I, I trust TikTok on this one. Yeah. Well, that does it for us this week. I know, Tommy, I'll be following up with you to ask what pocket watching is. You guys always teach me something new. If you don't already, please be sure to follow us on Apple or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or CastBox. Share this episode with a friend, family member, a coworker, probably a coworker. If you've got questions, comments, concerns, points of interest or complaints, email those over to podcasts at gray.com. Again, I want to thank Amanda and Tommy for joining us, Danielle and the crew at Gramercy Park behind the scenes. Thank you. See you next time. And in the meantime, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York, produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes, with post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson, Christina Hyde, and Liz McGovern. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.